Hello, greetings, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show. We have gone past 150 episodes. We are in, into episode 151, and it's all thanks to you. So thank you so much for supporting the show. Yes. Um, and as always, we have a whole bunch of questions. The number of questions is going on increasing week after week. I'm getting a flood of questions every week. So once again, thank you for that. So before we get into it, as always, let me greet you all. Let's see who all is there on the live chat and let's take a look at the, that. I can see Geopolitical Dubey. I can see Reevi, Kalita, Arita, Goswami, Aman, Urban Punk 9, RTK, Piyush, Roma, Bliss, Nero, Harshit, uh, Green Arrow, uh, Shibin, Sug Sugathan, Giga, <laughs> whatever, Somya Dikshit, Somita, Harsh Negi, Smaya, Ravi Mistri, Pritam, Manav, Manohar, Abhishek, Sanatanist, Nishad, Athalye, Samir Joshi, Ashwini, Jay, Dikshit, Swatantra Kumar, Yaduvansh, Harwood, Butcher, K8991 Gaming, Unnati and Dugu Video, Lenin, Lenin, Nasepam, Paul S, Saket, Shanu, Shiv, Vidrohi, Bhavya Deep, Changu Mangu, uh, Rahul Gandhi, Bansi Bacha, <laughs> Shamik Roy, Tarun Manmat, Pratham Arnish, the world teacher, Indian interest, Saurabh Badoria, Aditya Eklavya Lageraho online, Rao Shashwat Singh, Vedic philosopher, Alpha Debosman, Thunder Beast, Himanshu Aritra, Trupti Kanika, Kapoor's fan, General Dyer, Flying Raven, and so many other people. Illuminati Creek, uh, Bikash, Manav, Flying Raven, XKGB Agent, Janil, Sriram, Nikhil Vars, Karan, Drijesh, Solanki, Suman, and everybody else. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And now let's get into the questions. What are the questions that we have today? I will try and answer as many of these as possible. As always, I get so many questions every week and I'm really grateful for that. But I can only pick a few. So please don't get upset if I have not picked your question. Please don't get emotional about it. I try and pick the most in, uh, interesting questions that I can see and hopefully it uh, it provides value to all of you, right? Let's go into the questions. And this is not a question. It's from AV. It's a shout out to Hockey World Cup, please. Yes, so there's a Hockey, hockey World Cup going on right now in Odisha, in Raurkela and uh, Bhuvaneshwar, Kolkata, uh, um, Katak. Yeah, well, it's in, in this region that the, the Hockey World Cup is being played. And unfortunately, there's not much coverage of it in the Indian media. As always, the Indian media is obsessed with only one sport, cricket, and only one entertainment industry, Bollywood. So uh, do please be aware that uh, there's a Hockey World Cup going on. I personally am a huge fan of hockey. I think hockey is a really, really interesting sport. It's a really fast-paced sport. I can never sit and watch hockey. I'm like, it's especially when my team is playing India, you know. I get really involved in that. And I think there was a match going on just now between India and the old enemy England. So I'm not sure what happened in that. I was busy with other things. I could not see it. But yes, be aware that there's a World Cup on and let's support our team and let's support this sport, hockey, which I believe is India's national sport. So shout out to the Hockey World Cup. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's go to the next question. It's by Sanaullah Khan. Hi, I'm from Pakistan. India as a big brother should lend a helping hand to Pakistan. In return, Pakistan can give India a, a safe route to Central Asia 
we should help each other for uh, a good future well you know it's it's really good to see that there are sensible people on both sides of the border you know we typically see the the india pakistan relationship from a very specific perspective from a very specific lens and obviously we cannot uh, ignore the history that we have had the the forcible partition of india by external actors by by foreign occupiers who who cut india into pieces before they left india it was a terrible partition very bloody and then there there have been four wars that have been fought between india and pakistan and so that's the that's the terrible history that we have you know and like it or not everybody sees the relationship through that perspective and in and, and the the media obviously does its bit to uh, keep uh, the tensions uh, high and all that but it's good to see that there are sensible voices on the pakistani side on india india side as well so uh the thing is yeah it would be great if uh, if we could get along peacefully let's let's take a look at the map to understand i'm sure everybody knows the india pakistan uh, <laughs> uh map but let's anyway take a look at it so what is asanaula suggesting uh, there we are the india pakistan thing mm-hmm. so uh so he is suggesting that india should lend a helping hand to pakistan in return in pakistan can give india a safe route to central asia so currently the the route to central asia is is cut off yeah it is it is uh, is cut off because pakistan currently occupies temporarily what we call pakistan occupied kashmir right so that's the situation right now and that is the situation that's been there since 1948 uh so uh for this for, for so for what sanaula is suggesting to work out pakistan would have to uh, uh, return this territory to india pakistan occupied kashmir that's what would need to happen and then we can see how things go right and there is no sign of that happening so what needs to happen is that uh, a stable safe democratic and peaceful government needs to come into power in pakistan right now pakistan is ruled by the pakistani army and there's a puppet government that's in place yeah uh, the the whoever is the prime minister of pakistan at any given point in time is never really in power the true power always has resided in the hands of the pakistani army the pakistan armed forces yes uh so that's the situation so i i would be really happy if if india and pakistan could get along peacefully and then there would be no need to ever indulge in a in a future war right uh, but for that pakistan has to become truly democratic pakistan has to uh, uh the people of pakistan need to take back power from the pakistani army which which forcibly occupies the country yeah and then this border dispute needs to be resolved uh, we know that there have been massive protests going on in gilgit baltistan in pakistan occupied kashmir they want reunification with with uh, with india yeah we know that's happening so if that happens then india will regain its its uh, land connectivity with afghanistan and through afghanistan to central asia and if pakistan gives up its its uh, uh its desire to have to to wage continuous never ending war with india then we could get along in peace and there would be no need for any animosity any future war any of those things yeah so i think unfortunately uh, the ball lies in pakistan's court the ball lies in pakistan's court india has never initiated any of the uh, any of the hostilities that uh, that pakistan and india have had in the, in the past right uh, we've have we've we have fought four wars in the past and each of these four wars has been initiated unfortunately by pakistan yes so uh 
whether it's the 1948 uh, war whether it is the 1965 war the 1971 war or the 1999 the kargil war each of these wars has been initiated by pakistan india has no desire india has never had any desire to balkanize pakistan or to break up pakistan it's only now that india people in india are speaking about this because we need to find a solution once and for once and for all to the problem that india has faced since 1947 right that's the only reason why people in india are talking about balkanizing pakistan and it's something that could happen you know so if pakistan can get its uh, act together if pakistan can overthrow the army and, and, and establish a genuinely peaceful and, and democratic uh, government and and if pakistan gives up its its uh, never ending desire to break up and destroy india yeah then i'm sure we can live together in peace obviously that's high hopes <laughs> yeah so yeah any any way it's it's good to see that people on pakistan people in on the pakistani side also have this desire for peace which actually tells us that most people most likely on both sides desire peace it's only certain elements that uh, have see pakistan is whether we like it or not it's an artificially created nation it's been created it has been created by the the british by the western forces to uh, further their geopolitical interests it's an artificial nation that's been created and artificial nations unfortunately don't tend to last very long in the big picture of history if you see nations that have been created in this manner they typically don't last a century or two centuries you know so so that's the problem that pakistan faces it's an unstable nation it's a nation that's cobbled together uh, from uh, through outside interference it's a nation that is always on the on the brink of disaster it's always being bailed out by outside forces either by china or by by the us yeah so if pakistan if, if the people of pakistan can somehow get rid of the army we, you do need an army to safeguard your national interest i'm not saying you don't have you should not have an army i'm saying that the army should not run the country in every country the nation has an army in the case of pakistan the army has a nation it's the other way around so the army is a parasitic organism that's that's preying on the people and in the nation of pakistan if pakistan can establish a genuine democracy and a peaceful democracy then i don't see why india and pakistan can, cannot uh, coexist together yeah and india in in such a case if pakistan becomes a genuinely friendly and peaceful neighbor india will be happy to lend a helping hand to to pakistan there have been so many leaders who in india you know prime ministers and so on who have wanted the best of relations with pakistan it's a never ending story in india so it's not like there is no desire there's a lack of desire from india side the problem is, is it has always been, been the pakistani army and the pakistani politicians yeah so uh so yeah if if thing if the pakistani people can get their country in order and establish a genuine peaceful democracy then i'm sure that india will be happy to coexist peacefully and help pakistan in any any possible way uh, and obviously india will need uh, the land access back yeah the the land border with afghanistan so let us see how that goes but th- that's where we are right now it's not exactly the ideal situation yeah that is where we are right now okay let us take the next question daniel nicholson says uh you explain the heartland theory which makes it under- easier to understand the role of the us in ukraine uh how much do you think russian interests are at stake 
should russia fail to prevail in the ukraine special military operation what would be russia's stance should an indo china clash break out courtesy uh the direction of the the us okay we are talking about uh, russia the and and uh, the ukraine military special military operation so once again let's take a look at the the map because that gives us the right context so the special military operation is clearly as we know happening north of the black sea in the ukraine region yes uh, so let's understand what so you're saying what 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 would happen if russia were to fail in this operation right so how do we define failure from the russian perspective and what are the various uh, Uh, forces that are at play over here so the major forces are in this special operation in ukraine are russia and nato nato essentially means the united states okay so what are russia's objectives and what are the american objectives we have to understand that russia has a certain stated objective which is uh, the demilitarization and the denazification of ukraine it obviously also wants to reunify the donbas region with russia because it's a russian majority region the donbas region is the eastern and southern part of ukraine uh, kharkiv uh, luhansk donetsk mariupol all those regions right so that is the non negotiable part that the the donbas region first of all needs to be reunified with russia yes uh and the, the the other thing is that they want to uh, like they said uh denazify and demilitarize ukraine what that really means is they want to ensure that ukraine is no longer under us influence because that is too close for comfort for russia yeah to have american influence right at your doorstep from the russian perspective is a red line that cannot allow be allowed to to be crossed yeah so what the russians actually want is to eliminate all american interference or influence from ukraine they obviously most likely want a regime change in kiev and maybe they would allow the western part of ukraine to remain the, the, you know to the, the rump state of ukraine and they would uh, reunify the donbas region with russia they would install a puppet regime in kiev and maybe the the, the one third western part of ukraine could be allowed to remain ukraine that most likely could be the long term scenario understand that this is not something they want in 2022 or 2023 it's always a long term plan in geopolitics whatever is happening now is in pursuance of a long term objective which is a 20 30 40 50 year objective that's always how it is in geopolitics okay nobody does anything which is a knee jerk reaction it's always a, i mean no good leader would do that only a, a you know a bad leader does knee jerk reactions whatever is happening here is part of long term objectives there are long term american objectives and there are long term russian objectives so the russians want to eliminate all american influence from the ukraine region that is number 1 right what the what do the americans want they want ukraine to come fully under american influence and in the long run they would like russia to be balkanized and they would like to regain the access to russia that they had during the boris yeltsin era so uh, after uh, the breakup of the ussr uh, boris yeltsin became the leader of russia and he was in all ways a in every single way a pro western leader he was one could say a western stooge that's what the russians uh, think of him they also think of mikhail gorbachev in, in much the same way 
So the Americans would like to have that sort of access once again within Russia. Eventually, they would like to uh, possibly break up Russia and gain access to the incredible natural resources that the that, that Russia possesses. This entire immense territory that Russia straddles is home to about half of the entire planet's natural resources in terms of uh, raw materials, uh, uh, oil, gas, coal, metals, uh, iron, iron ore, and much more, you know, agriculture, so much more. So the Americans would love to gain access to all that. And they would love to see somebody a weak leader come to power in the Kremlin, yes. So that's the kind of long-term objectives the Americans have. The Russians would like to see what would the Russian what would the Russian long-term objective be? Uh, Ukraine is not the long-term objective. The long-term objective is to recreate the kind of uh, structure the the USSR had. Essentially, you could call it. You know, a few a few months back, I had this uh, live stream which in which I had uh, I had given it the title of Akhand Russia, right? So they would like to recreate a, a USSR kind of uh, situation, a Khand Russia kind of thing. Yeah, they would like to recreate the Warsaw Pact or or uh, the Warsaw Pact kind of satellite states that the USSR had, and they would like to regain some territories that they have lost eventually in the long run. Yes, uh, so that's the kind of long-term objective Russia has to recreate something like the USSR. The long-term objective of the US is to. Uh, regain influence that they had in Russia to get rid of somebody like Putin and to have a weak leader again in Russia, in Russia and oh, hopefully to balkanize Russia and gain access to all the natural resources and everything else in Russia. So these are the two competing objectives. So what would it mean for Russia to fail? It means that they'll be unable to dislodge uh, America from Ukraine. That is what it means for Russia to fail in the Ukraine special military operation, right? So right now, it's still in the balance. The Russians control about a quarter of what used to be Ukraine. And uh, now the winter is very much in. Yeah, it's very much in force now. The Rasputitsa season is over. So there could be a Russian winter offensive happening sometime. That's what everybody is expecting now. So let's see how that goes. So if that fails, if the Russians are unable to... Uh, Effect a regime change in Ukraine, that's what it means for them to fail. If that happens, then Mr. Putin's uh, future is in doubt because he will be seen to have failed in, in his attempt to uh, to regain Russian, Russian prestige and Russian influence in the region. And then things are, things would go bad for him. So he cannot afford to fail. If he fails, if he fails in 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 raised, in, in uh, dislodging Mr. Zelensky and, uh, and appointing a puppet president in, in Kiev, then in the long run, things could go bad for Russia itself. Mr. Putin may perhaps fall out of power. Maybe uh, somebody else could come in power. It's all speculation, but that's how things could go. Yeah. Um, so everything is at stake for Russia. For Russia, it's essentially a fight for survival. Yeah. For Russia, it's a fight for survival. For the for the Americans, it's uh, they 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 are trying. It, it, they would like to expand further. So the Americans are not fighting for survival. They are they are fighting for expansion. They are. They have been relentlessly expanding westwards. NATO has been relentlessly expanding westwards since the 1990s. Uh, you know, they had given assurances that they would not do that, but they have been doing it ever since the 1990s. So uh, now Russia is is trying to stop the expansion. And if they succeed, then the Americans will have to stop at that point, and they will keep on trying in in other uh, in other ways as well. 
So that's the situation. For Russia, it's a, st- a struggle for survival. If they succeed, then they will perhaps go into expansion mode slowly. Yeah. Of course, it will all depend on who comes after Mr. Putin. If Mr. Putin succeeds in this operation, then he will obviously have to think about who is going to be his successor in the long run. Because uh, he is obviously, I think, going to cross 70, 70 years of age, more or less. So I don't see him lasting another 10 years. That, that would be too much. I mean, obviously, in the U.S., you have you have a 130-year-old president right now. That's okay. But typically, people do not uh, stay on as leaders uh, at, at past a certain age. So for Russia, it's a struggle for survival. For the for the Americans, uh, it's a challenge to their expansionism. That's the situation, yeah. Uh, and what would Russia's stance be to an Indo-China clash, which were supposedly to break out? Well, the Russian, Russians would want to be neutral, yeah. They will officially adopt a neutral position. They will uh, urge both sides to uh, stop fighting and go to the negotiating table and find a peaceful solution. That's what would be the official status. Unofficially, they would want India to come out on top because China is a big threat to them. Yeah. But yeah, the situation is complicated. So that's what I can say about this matter. Now let's talk about the Sino-Soviet split. It's a question by Rodrajit Sarkar. Rodrajit says, you have told us about the 1969 Sino-Soviet clash, border clash after the Sino-Soviet split. But why did the Sino-Soviet split happen in the first place? Both countries were important to each other for many reasons. Did the Americans have any role in this? Okay, so let's talk about the Sino-Soviet clash. Um, The USSR and China, both were communist countries, right? We know that uh, in the USSR, you had the great strongman Joseph Stalin in China, you had the great strongman Mao Zedong. Yeah, so that's the situation that you had in in the 1940s and 1950s. Now, uh, Mao Zedong regarded Stalin as as a great hero of his. Yeah, he had genuine respect for Joseph Stalin. Yeah, uh, the USSR always uh, treated China, uh, always tra- treated China as a junior partner. China was a very poor nation. It was a nation that was in shambles, broken up. The USSR had had built up these enormous industries. They had come out on top in World War II. They had a very strong, powerful army. They had developed nuclear weapons. So they obviously were one of the two big superpowers. And they always treated China as a junior partner. And Mao Zedong was fine with that as long as Joseph Stalin was in power in the USSR because he had genuine admiration and respect for Joseph Stalin. Now, Joseph Stalin died in 1953. Yes, Mao Zedong lived on for a long, much longer time. So Joseph Stalin dies in 1953. And in his place comes a new leader, Nikita Khrushchev, who was in power for about nine years, 1953 to 1964 or something. So that's Nikita Khrushchev. Now, Mao Zedong did not respect Nikita Khrushchev to any in any way, the, the the way that he respected Joseph Stalin, he did not have any kind, any of that kind of respect for Nikita Khrushchev. He found Nikita Khrushchev to be ideologically vacillating, ideologically weak, and not uh, worthy of the kind of respect that Joseph Stalin deserved. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Nikita Khrushchev was in power until 
from 1953 to 1964 from 1964 to about 1981 82 you had leonid the brezhnev who was in joseph in, in mao zedong's eyes an even weaker leader and all of these things they eventually led to the sino-soviet split so while stalin was in power uh, mao zedong was okay with the soviets treating china as a junior partner but when these leaders who came in came in after Stalin, who Mao did not respect that much and who he considered to be kind of weak and ideologically questionable. And then the USSR still continues treating China as a, as a junior partner. That kind of rankled with uh, Mao Zedong. And then there were these ideological uh, clashes. So on the one hand, you had the USSR's Marxism-Leninism. On the other hand, you had China's Maoism. So the Maoists, Mao, believed that... Uh, See, in, in, in Marxism, in communism, in Marxism especially, you have the idea of the people's revolution, right? The society is a revolutionary society. This, uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat and all that. So Mao believed that a revolutionary society should be led by the peasantry, the peasants, the farmers, you know, the, the proletariat. He believed that the Soviet Union's model of, of socialism of communism was too centralized it was too bureaucratic and was kind of bourgeois it was not revolutionary enough yeah and th this this uh, perception became accentuated after the demise of joseph joseph Stalin and the uh, coming to power of nikita khrushchev and later leonid brezhnev yes uh, mao also did not like the soviet union's uh, policy of of uh, what he considered to be peaceful coexistence with the uh, capitalist nations like the US. The Soviets wanted to somehow coexist with the capitalist nations like the US and the Soviets wanted to show eventually that we will come out on top and our our system, our, our ideology is the best. But Mao did not like it. He did not like that the Soviets wanted to coexist peacefully with the capitalist countries. He wanted to see a more vigorous and robust struggle against the capitalist countries and the capitalist ideology. And he also was displeased with the Soviet Union's lack of support for various revolutionary movements around the world. The Soviets did support various revolutionary movements and so on, but that was for geopolitical purposes, not from ideological reasons. Yeah. So Mao was, from that perspective, a little more ideological and, and a little more uh, idealistic, you could say. And the other thing is that the USSR was focusing on Eastern Europe. It wanted to increase its influence in Eastern Europe, in what what we just spoke about, the Warsaw Pact countries, the uh, the Eastern Europe uh, satellite states of the USSR. Yeah, and the USSR was focusing on countering the US in that region, whereas China was focusing on consolidating its control over China and spreading communism again and revolution in the Third World. So it was again more ideological from the Chinese perspective. So you had these very stark differences, mainly ideological differences. So uh, from the Maoist perspective, from the Chinese perspective, the Soviets were going soft and they were not communist enough and they were not hardline enough. Yeah, And obviously we had the personal animosity between Mao Zedong and Nikita Khrushchev. So that also was a factor. So all of this eventually uh, led to what we call the Sino-Soviet split, which is slowly happened after the death of Stalin from the 1950s to the 1960s onwards. You had, which all culminated in the disaster of the Usuri River clashes of 1969. Let, let's go to the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Where's the map? Here we are. The Usuri River clashes, which the Usuri River is now the border. 
of uh, of the of of Russia and China. So somewhere over here we had this island. What was it called? The Zhenbao Island. Where is the Zhenbao Island? Okay, I always I try to find it and then I, then I miss it. I'm sure it's here somewhere. Is it here? Let's just uh, Google it for convenience. Zhenbao Island. Is here. It's here. The island is here. So it's over here that the uh, this became a flashpoint. The two nations clashed over here. There were rather brutal military clashes. Several hundred soldiers died total. Both sides claimed that the other side lost more soldiers and all that. In the aftermath of the Usuri River clashes, uh, the USSR actually decided to nuke China. Yeah. The Soviets decided to nuke China, and it was the Americans that uh, intervened. The Americans intervened, and they threatened Russia with a retaliatory strike. They threatened the USSR with a retaliatory strike if the Soviets went ahead with a nuclear strike on China. Essentially, it's the Americans that saved China, and this action eventually paved the way for the Sino-American detente, which happened under the leadership of, uh, who was it? Nixon, Nixon Kissinger, and Mao Zedong, and that's what happened, right? So that is the whole deal. So the Sino-Soviet split was mainly ideological, and also we had differences of perception of the border and various other factors and animosity between the leaders of the two nations. All of these things combined together to create the Sino-Soviet split. That's how it happened, all right? Right. Rodrajit once again. We know that Russia gradually moved to the east and annexed a huge chunk of land. But what happened to the native people of those conquered lands? Good question. I have not heard anyone ask this thus far. What happened to the native people of those conquered lands? Did they suffer the same fate as the Native Americans? This is a very good question and rather important. It's a rather important question. What happened to those conquered people of in those conquered lands? Did they suffer the same fate as the Native Americans? Let's once again go back to the map. Oh, give me a second. We need to take a look at the map to understand how things are, how things went. So let's go back to the 13th century. Yeah, let's go back to the 13th century. Uh, in the 13th century, first half of the 13th century, you had the great... Mongol conqueror, the great warrior for peace, Shri Chinggis Khan, who had conquered an enormous territory in an incredibly short amount of time. He conquered more territory in 20 years than the, than the Roman Empire was able to conquer in two and a half centuries. Yeah, uh, So that's what Chinggis Khan did. And during Chinggis Khan's lifetime, two of, of his generals, who are they? Jebe and Subotai? Uh, or somebody else? I, I forget the name. Two of his generals, they went on an expedition, a, a Reconnaissance expedition in the West, all right? Um, after the conquest of Khwarazma, uh, it's a whole in, very interesting story. It, it, it ends up on the borders of India, which uh, I have covered in a different video on the channel. So in the aftermath of the Mongol conquest of Khwarazm, two of his generals went on a reconnaissance mission and they uh, encountered Russians for the first time. After the death of Shri Chinggis Khan, his son Ogode Khan became the Khan and later the Mongol Empire expanded much further and the Slavic peoples and the Russians fell under what they call the Mongol yoke. The Mongols conquered Russia. So this happened in the 13th century 
and until the late 15th century the russians were under the mongol yoke they were conquered people and, and they they were ruled by the mongols it's by the 1480s or so that the, the russians were able to throw off the mongol occupation that's when you had the great principality of moscovy that became a genuine power and then the from the 16th century onwards the russians started expanding eastwards now what was the reason for this expansion eastwards it was all for the fur trade fur was a very valuable commodity and these enormous lands this enormous expanse of lands in in uh, eastern in, in northern eurasia was had plentiful resources of furs you know various animals that that have these winter coats you know that that were the, they would be hunted and the skins would be taken and used for fur and this was a very lucrative trade and the russians uh, wanted to capitalize on that so they started expanding eastwards gradually and they came upon all these various peoples you know turkic peoples and other peoples whom they slowly gradually conquered so this was a process that started in the 16th century and it culminated in the eventual uh, conquest of the entirety of what is now eastern russia in the 19th century and they even uh, took over parts of alaska in the 19th century no the entirety of alaska in the 19th century uh, by the mid 19th century they had taken over all of alaska it was eventually sold to the us because the russians believed that there was not much of value over there it was it was um, you know too far away uh, so um, so all of this territory was conquered over a period of about 300 or so years and uh, they conquered all the peoples who lived here you have all these different you know ethnicities of livia turkic peoples uh, the the ainu people in the, in the far east you know uh, in the sakhalin region in 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 north of hokkaido in the kuril islands uh, the kamchatka peninsula all that you have the ainu ainu people ainu people the kamchatkan people the chukotku people the tungusic people in the tungus uh, tunguska region uh, various turkic uh, ethnicities the altai people the tatars whom, with whom the the russians had significant amount of strife now the tatars are one of the major ethnic groups in russia you have the yakutian peoples the mongolic peoples north of who live north of mongolia the samoyeds the aleutian people and so many more so many more peoples were conquered and and they were so what happened to them is the question did they suffer the same fate as the native americans the question then obviously which which begs itself is what happened to the native americans what happened to the native native americans was a systematic genocide at least 56 million native americans were wiped out in just about a century or so i have showed you the references in in the past in a, in a past video i'm not going to dig it out once again you can look it up it's it's well known yeah and over a period of about three or so centuries at least 100 million native americans would have lost their lives because of the european occupation of their territories so when it comes to the native americans it was deliberate systematic genocide these people were wiped out of existence that's what happened to the native americans and that's how north america is now all you know settled by european origin people and the natives are not even second rate but the third rate citizens in these lands in their own ancestral lands what happened to the native people of of uh, siberia and north eurasia was not quite what happened to the native americans yes they were defeated yes they were conquered there would have been massacres there would have been atrocities but it was it would 
it did not culminate in what you could consider to be genocide. What happened was you could call cultural assimilation or cultural imposition, cultural imperialism uh, to some extent. Yeah. So all these peoples were forcibly Russified. They were made to start, they were made to speak Russian. Uh, many of them possibly were converted to Christianity, Catholicism, or Orthodox uh, Russian Christianity. And there was some reverse, uh, reverse inculturation as well. Uh, Buddhism entered the Russian uh, life, you know, the, the Russian cultural sphere. A significant percentage of, of Russia's population today is Buddhist. Pr principally, uh, it's uh, it's principally Tibetan Buddhism that you have in Russia. And that initially came in through the Mongols because the Mongols practiced Tibetan Buddhism. We have spoken about this in the past on this channel. Uh, so all of these peoples today who live in Russia, whether it is north of Mongolia, whether it is the Altai, Altai people, the Tuvan people, the Yakut people, the Aleutian people, the Mo Mongolic peoples, the Samoyeds, the Tungosic peoples, whoever it is, they all more or less speak Russian as one of their principal languages. If not the principal language, then the second language. But they are all perfectly fluent in Russian as if it's their native language. Yeah. Uh, so all of these people were Russified. It was a process of Russification. It was not exactly genocide. It was nothing close to what happened to the Native American peoples. But yes, these peoples, these people, their territories became Russian territories and uh, they lost whatever control they had. So they were made to become Russian citizens and they had to obey the Russian laws and all that stuff. Yeah. And eventually all of this became part of Russia. So it was all conquest, but it was not genocide. It was a uh, uh, Russification of all these regions. So that is essentially what happened. They did not suffer the, suffer the same fate as the Native Americans, but the territories were taken and they lost control of, they lost sovereignty over these territories. That's essentially what happened. Shaheen Wahman Zadegan says, what was the 4.2 kilo year event? And was this a crucial factor in the end of the Saraswati Sindhu era in India? All right, that's a great question. So in the past, you may remember, I have spoken about a, an ancient geopolitical event between India and the Akkadian Empire that was in the 43rd century BC. Uh, sorry, that was in the 23rd century BC. Uh, it was uh, in, in the two, year 2200 something BC or so, there was this king called Rimush of Akkad. He was the second king of the Akkadian Empire. He was the son of the great Sargon of Akkad. He ruled for less than a decade, but he went to war with the people of Ilam and with the people of Marhashi. And, and the people of Ilam and Marhashi, they had allies in India. And India at the time was what we call the so-called uh, Indus Valley Civilization, Saraswati Sindhu Civilization. And it is recorded in the Akkadian uh, Chronicles that the Indians send, sent soldiers to the aid of Marhashi and, and uh, Ilam. And apparently the, the Akkadians won that, that conflict. So India participated in a war outside of what was traditionally called India in what is now Persia or Iran. Yeah, And it was with the Akkadian Empire, which was based in what is now Iraq. So this event happened in the 2200s BC, between 22, around 2275, 2278 or something BC. That's when it happened. About a century after that, we have the 4.2 kilo year event. 
a century or so after this after this war yeah after rimush of akkad so this 4.2 kilo year event happened in the 22nd century bc in the 23rd century bc we had this war with rimush so this 4.2 kilo year event was about a century it lasted about a century or so it was a century of drought approximately 100 years of very less rainfall and significant drought worldwide globally in india in china in the middle east in africa drought 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 everywhere yeah so around this time we know that the great saraswati river which was a rain fed river which originated in the himalayas and went all the way into the sea of saurashtra which is now called spuriously the, the arabian sea this river was already declining the indian monsoon started declining monotonically around 6000 bc slow decline of the indian monsoon because of this the saraswati river started declining too slowly and gradually and in because of this 4.2 kilo year event this decline was significantly precipitated and it's probably around this time that the river stopped reaching the sea and it ended in this big lake which eventually dried out and it is now called the thar desert the thar desert let's go once once again back to the map so if you go to india to western india we have the great thar desert you see the entire region of rajasthan yeah it's all it's all brownish yellowish over here yeah that is the enormous thar desert most likely the saraswati river dried out and and stopped reaching the sea and it it ended up in a in a big lake or puddle or marsh in this region which eventually dried out and gave rise to rise to all the sand dunes the kind of thing that you see in the aral sea today the same sort of thing yeah when a big lake or sea dries out what you get is a desert with sand dunes and all that so most likely as a result of the 4.2 kilo year event this the river stopped reaching the sea uh, and yes this most likely was a crucial factor in the end of the saraswati sindhu era in western india so western india the saptasindhu region which is the region of the sindhu river the great indus river uh, the saraswati which no longer exists mostly and the various other rivers in this region this was a very fertile region and that's where you had the main uh, focus of the civilization of that time our civilization of that time which historians call the indus valley or harappan civilization so around this time because of the drying out of the saraswati and a very less monsoon and all that there were significant migrations out of the region and these migrations most likely started around this time around the 4.2 kilo year event and people were forced to migrate to other parts of of the region many of them went eastwards many of them went northwards northwards you still had lots of water many rivers india obviously is a river valley civilization so you had the ganga ganga river valley narmada river valley the yamuna river valley and so many more so people were made were forced to give up the lifestyle they had been living for several thousand years and they were forced to migrate to other parts of india but the migrations were not only eastwards into what we now call mainland india many of these migrations were also westwards yeah and it's around this time that you have the uh, that that you have the infamous rampage of the so called yamnaya men across europe right and it's around this time also that you have various other things happening which indicate a uh, indian presence far west of india so yes the 4.2 kilo year event was a major period of drought approximately it, it lasted approximately a century 
of drought, you know. And yes, it was definitely a crucial factor in uh, a complete reconfiguration of society and life in the Indian subcontinent and in various other parts of the world. And it could be what precipitated the slow, the the gradual decline of what we call the Saraswati Hindu civilization, that, that phase of Indian civilization or the Harappan phase or the Indus Valley phase. Yeah. So slowly these cities had to be, they were slowly abandoned and people moved elsewhere and eventually the cities fell out of use and they they are the way the, we see them now so that was the 4.2 kilo year event it was a major drought and it kind of uh, reconfigured life all across the planet yeah ab says you told us about zebu cattle migration z e b u zebu is it possible that the Yamnaya people invasion or migration is connected to, to the Zebu cattle migration? <laughs> a good question, yeah. So once again, let's go here. So I spoke about the Zebu cattle migration. What are the Zebu cattle? Let's first of all take a look at what a Zebu cattle looks like. Uh, let us go back to where are we? Let's do Google search for Zebu cattle, shall we? Zebu cattle. What does Zebu cattle look like? The zebu cattle are your standard Indian cattle, the bulls with the big humps on their shoulders. This is what you see in the Ashoka uh, inscriptions and pillars and all that. The, these are the, the seals that you see in the Saraswati Sindhu region. Yeah, the Saraswati Sindhu Indus Valley seals with the humped bulls, with this big dewlap, you know, under the chin, this big fold of skin and all. This is the zebu cattle. These are the zebu cattle. These are the standard Indian cattle, Indian origin cattle. And it is known genetically and scientifically that these cattle originate in India. These are Indian cattle. They have come from nowhere else, right? So what do we find? What, what, what do we know about the Zebu cattle? I have spoken about the Zebu cattle migration. What we find, let's now go to the map. Let's now go to the map and let me tell you what happened. So once again, where is the map? Here is the map. Let's take a look at it. Here. So about... About 4,200 years ago, which kind of coincides with this uh, 4.2 kilo year event, around this time, it is known that all of a sudden, Zebu bulls started breeding with boss taurus female cattle right across the fertile crescent which is this region, Iraq, the eastern Mediterranean region, Anatolia, Egypt, all of this, all of this is called the fertile crescent. Around 4.2 thousand years ago, Indian zebu bulls started breeding with female Bostaurus cattle in this region, the Fertile Crescent region. Now, bulls, cattle, they don't migrate on their own. It's not like a bunch of cattle say, hey, let's go for a walk and they go all the way to Egypt. It doesn't happen like that. Cattle only migrate with humans. Cattle are domesticated species. They have been domesticated for thousands of years in India. So if cattle suddenly started breeding with local, uh, if, if Indian bulls are suddenly, started, uh, suddenly appear in the Fertile Crescent and start breeding with the local female cattle over there, it means Indian people migrated to this region and brought these bulls with them. Yeah. And we have archaeological evidence in Egypt from approximately 2000 BC of Zebu cattle, including uh, uh, depictions of Zebu cattle on, on pottery and rocks and other such inscriptions and all that. Yeah. So, so th that's what happened approximately 4.2 thousand years ago. And like I said, after the 4.2 kilo year event, people were for 
in in the indian subcontinent were forced to migrate in different directions many of them went eastwards and many of them actually went westwards and that coincides with the arrival of these uh, cattle these bulls indian bulls in the fertile crescent region yeah migrations can happen very fast you see, you see the the what is now pakistan and iran the border is is very much dry it's very easy to cross so you can cross this region on foot in a matter of months in a matter of weeks actually yeah even if you have a whole large herd of cattle with you it's not difficult to cross this region obviously you will eventually run into the zagros mountains and all that but it's not very difficult to cross this region so very rapidly after the 4.2 year uh, kilo year event you have indians arriving in this region you have the arrival of zebu cattle in egypt itself yeah and this is just a few centuries before the arrival before the the empire of the hittites the empire of the mitanni and the, the the invasion of the hyksos people into egypt this is this all seems to be a set of coincidences that all happened at the same time this cannot be coincidences this is all interconnected history is not a set of coincidences history is a, is a set of 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 uh, cause and effect events it's all causality it's all interconnected yeah so what happens is that people seem to have migrated from the saraswati sindhu valley region into central asia into the middle east into africa etc approximately 4200 years ago which coincides with the 4.2 kilo year event and these people most likely introduced zebu cattle ancestry into these regions today you have zebu cattle ancestry um, you have cattle all across africa that have zebu cattle ancestry all across africa even in central africa even in eastern africa today yeah and these zebu cattle are unambiguously unmistakably of indian origin and you have zebu cattle ancestry even in europe and all that so that's a whole different story so that is the deal now the question is about the yamnaya invasion also so the yamnaya invasion happens up, is said to have happened around 4500 years ago which kind of predates by a few centuries the 4.2 kilo year event and the introgression of indian cattle into the middle east and africa so most likely the yamnaya invasion of europe was a different event possibly not connected to the 4.2 kilo year event most likely the yamnaya were people who went out of india a few centuries before the invasion of europe they most likely settled down in the central asian steppe region for a few centuries and then eventually for some reason they decided to rampage across europe and do the things that they did yeah so most likely the, and, and we know that the yamnaya were horse riding invaders they were fierce warriors they 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 swept aside everything that came in front of them nobody could uh, withstand the yamnaya invasion yeah and they were definitely not cattle farmers these were warriors these were horse riders they were not nomads who would who would move slowly from one place to another they rampaged across europe at an unimaginable speed so most likely the yamnaya people are not connected with the zebu cattle they definitely seem to be of indian origin yeah uh, and the r1b haplogroup is what you find predominantly predominantly among the yamnaya men the yamnaya were mostly men mostly men very few women uh, and and all that yeah so that's the deal so the zebu cattle migration seems to be a completely disc- unconnected event from the uh, yamnaya invasion the yamnaya in- invasion predates the arrival of zebu cattle in in uh, the fertile crescent by about 3 or 4 centuries yeah so most likely these are 
events that are not connected to each other. Saurabh Bhadoria says, what was the basis for the hypothesis of chronology of different metal ages, like the Bronze Age, Iron Age, etc.? Uh, as they, Indologists, put the timeline of Rig Veda much earlier because of the mentioning of iron in the text, even neglecting other factors like archaeoastronomy, Saraswati River, evolution of language from Rig Veda to Sanskrit, and all, all kinds of things. Okay, the question is about the chronology of metal ages. So we have what is called the so-called three-age system, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age, right? So, so uh, where does this originate? So, there was a guy. It all starts with a guy. What was the name? The guy's name. His name. He was a Danish archaeologist. Let's let's Google the guy. Yeah, let's go to Google. Where is Google? Here we are. Let us uh, Google Christian Christian Jurgensen Thomsen. This is the name of the guy. He was a Danish antiquarian archaeologist, whatever, yeah. And in the early 19th century, he developed what is called the three-age system. The three-age system proposed that uh, the chronology of human history, it, it went through three different ages. First, you had the Stone Age, then you had the Bronze Age, and then you had the Iron Age. So... And, and each age was more sophisticated than, than the previous age. So in the Stone Age, the humans could only use stone tools. Yeah, they were very primitive, uh, backward people, our, our ancestors. They did not have any, any knowledge of of, uh, uh, of uh, metal metals and all that. Yeah, so that was the Stone Age, which uh, went on for a very long time. Then you had the Bronze Age. So humans uh, acquired the ability to, 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 uh, to create bronze tools tools and weapons. So you have bronze swords, bronze uh, vessels and things like that. And eventually there was an iron age, which was more sophisticated, which was, which required better technology, more sophisticated technology, advanced technology than during the bronze age. So that is the hypothesis that this person made in the early 19th century. And ever since then, we have been following this. And there obviously has been criticism of this that, you know, it's a very simple oversimplification it's a very oversimplistic model of the progress of, of human history and human evolution and all that. It's not always like this. And like Saurabh says, in the Rig Veda, uh, there, uh, there is mention of iron. Uh, so then, <laughs> so in the Rig Veda, there is mention of ayas, right? Ayas is, well, is it iron or is it some other metal? We're not quite sure, but most likely it means iron. So if people were using iron, our ancestors were using iron during the Rig Vedic age. Well, that pushes back the Iron Age to a whole, uh, to a time period way before what is uh, conventionally understood to be the Iron Age. And then we have to ask ourselves the question uh, as to when was the Rig Veda written? Now, if you ask Romila Thapar, she will say it was written after 1500 BC. It was written maybe 3000 years ago. That's what uh, the... Uh, Indian Marxist historians will tell you, which is all nonsense for, from a variety of logical reasons. Yeah, the Rig Veda obviously mentions that Saraswati is a great river. We know what happened to the Saraswati uh, around 4,200 years ago. She started drying out very badly. Yeah, so clearly this is written, and and the Saraswati started declining around 6,000 BC with the with the beginning of the decline of the Indian monsoon. So the Rig Veda is clearly written at a time closer to 6,000 BC than to 1500 BC. Yeah. The second thing is that the Rig Veda clearly de describes the society of the time. It describes a rural pastoral society. 
it describes a pre-Saraswati Sindhu civilization society. The Saraswati Sindhu phase of our history, of our civilization, was a magnificently urbanized phase of history. Our civilization was entirely urban, extremely technologically advanced, and a very large population for that time. Yeah? And in a huge population area, a huge uh, geographical area. The, Rig, the society that, that is described in the texts in the text of the Rig Veda is not an urban society. It's not a very technologically advanced society. Yeah? In the, in the case of monumental architecture and roads and grid system and, and multi-storied buildings and, and, and hydro engineering and all that, the Rig Veda doesn't describe any of that. The Rig Veda describes a rural pastoral society. Yeah? So this is clearly something that uh, today's historians would describe as pre-Harappan. Yeah? And the pre-Harappan phase is way before 4,000, 4, it's, it's way before 4,000 BC. So once again, the Rig Veda seems to have been written closer to 6,000 BC than, than to 3,000 or 4,000 BC. So clearly the Rig Veda is way older than what these people have been claiming it is. And then the Rig Veda, we know, it has references to Ayas, which is iron, most likely. So if the Indian Iron Age was about 6000 BC, that kind of <laughs> messes up the chronology that uh, that our friend, what's his name, Christian Jurgensen Thompson came up with. Yeah. So this entire hypothesis of the chronology of, of the this three-age system, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, it is not a hard and fast rule. It's something that somebody came up with, just like somebody came up with the Aryan invasion theory. It's not, you know, when someone comes up with a theory, it has to stand the test of time and it has to match the observational evidence. And clearly, the Aryan invasion theory doesn't match that. And maybe in the case of um, the three uh, age system, maybe that also doesn't match what we know about uh, about our history. So that is the thing. So the basis is just a hypothesis. The basis for the three-age system, the chronology of the Metal Ages, is just a hypothesis that, or a theory that uh, a Danish uh, archaeologist came up with. It's not something we have to uh, worship as something that's set in stone, just like the Indian constitution. Yeah, it's it's a hypothesis that somebody came up with, and it it's not something that is set in stone, or iron, or bronze. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Daniel Nicholson says, if the temporary state Pakistan engages India on our Western theater as the People Republic, People's Republic of China's re-lieutenant, which would engage India in the North and Northeast, we would only have to use the nuclear option to decide Pakistan's fate within the first five minutes. In this case, wouldn't the U.S. directly get a premise to, premise to send its invasive fleet, fleet to Indian shores? What would be the end result of this chaotic war? Garbik Singh Chauhan says, with the U.S.A. constantly supporting Pakistan and Russia not compromising in its relations with China, will India be able to independently sustain a two-front war? Let me answer Garbik's question first. It is likely that if India goes to war with China, it will also simultaneously be engaged in a war with Pakistan. If India and China go to war, the Pakistanis will most likely also attack. We have to be prepared for that. And so, the solution in case of a two-front war is to extinguish one front as soon as possible. Now, Pakistan is no match for India in terms of military might. So, the, the thing, the solution 
if if india is embroiled in a two front war is to extinguish one war immediately as soon as possible and that's why i had said in the past that in case pakistan initiates a war with india in the future that war should be the last war india fights with pakistan and the outcome of that war should be decided in the first 5 minutes that's what i had said now daniel seems to have interpreted that as as meaning a nuclear strike my friends i will never ever advocate a nuclear strike the nuclear option is something nobody should ever use all right so when i said that the outcome of the war should be decided in the first 5 minutes i did not mean a nuclear strike i meant a conventional missile strike a massive missile strike a preemptive strike to end all strikes that's what i meant i do not mean a nuclear strike we should never ever use the nuclear option now the question is if india wipes out pakistan in the first 5 minutes will it not give the us a premise to send an invasion fleet to india if pakistan initiates the war india has the right to retaliate and respond india as a sovereign nation has the right to go to war if provoked in which case nobody has the right or, or nobody has the will have any pretext to send an invasion fleet to india yeah and what's the point of sending an invasion fleet by the time the pakistanis will be dealt with yeah and will be dealing with china so uh, so the thing is india should not initiate the next war with pakistan but if pakistan initiates the next war it should be the final war and the outcome should be decided in the first 5 minutes not through a nuclear strike but through conventional means and it should, it should take out the ability of pakistan to launch a strike a nuclear strike on india yeah uh, so i mean i am just giving you know a big picture thing obviously the indian armed forces and the government know better how to go about doing things but what's clear is that the outcome has to be decided very rapidly very very rapidly it should not be a war that is drawn out and it gets into tank warfare and long long drawn out tactics and all it should be decided instantly within the first 5 minutes by taking out pakistan's ability to inflict any kind of damage on india immediately take out all their airfields take out all their all their aircraft take out all the radars and take out their nuclear facilities or, or whatever else whatever sensitive and critical installations and all that they have those need to be taken out immediately which is why i always keep saying india needs massive stockpiles of missiles 50 missiles 100 missiles 200 missiles will not do the trick india needs a stockpile of at least 10000 missiles of different kinds that's what a, a major world power does yeah so that is the deal in case of a two front war the the one front needs to be extinguished immediately you can't let two fronts uh, simmer on for a long time so the pakistani problem has to be dealt with instantly once and for all that problem should be finished the next time the pakistanis instigate a, uh, initiate a war with india we should not initiate the war we are uh, we have never initiated a war with pakistan or with china yes we have always responded in the future also if the pakistanis start a war if they do we should end it very quickly and then deal with the chinese this is all hypotheticals obviously because uh, india is not the kind of nation that even the chinese can afford to really tangle with because they also could end up um, suffering the kind of damage that uh, would not be nice for them so just 
reminder to our, our good Chinese friends. Uh, yeah, so that's I think that's the question, and that I think I have uh, answered it. Yeah. So yeah, the chaotic war. There'll be no chaotic war. It'll be a on-off war. That's it with Pakistan. With the Chinese, we'll deal with it separately. Okay, Samrat says, is India researching about making nukes with thorium? Ooh, thorium. What impact will it have if India obtains the technology of making nukes with thorium? Daniel says, how practical is the use usage of thorium as a means of clean energy? India accounts for a quarter of the global thorium reserves. Is it a practical solution to India's power energy needs in the future? How far are we from harnessing thorium-based electricity or thorium-based nukes? Let's see what thorium looks like. Let's Google it. It's a metal. Thorium is a metal. Thorium-232. To Sorry, thorium. Thorium. It's a metallic element. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Thorium 232. That's what it is. So, thorium is not a fissile material like uranium is. Yeah, it can't be used to create nuclear weapons directly. Thorium can be converted into uranium 233, U233, which is a fissile element and can be used in nuclear weapons. Yep. So uranium 233 is produced by irradiating thorium 232 with neutrons inside a machine called a reactor, a nuclear reactor. It's not your regular nuclear reactor. It needs a special kind of nuclear reactor called a breeder reactor. So this process of creating uranium-233 out of thorium-232 is not simple. It, re it requires a special kind of reactor called a breeder reactor. A breeder reactor is a special kind of nuclear reactor which is capable of producing more fissile material than what it consumes. Yep. So you can have a thorium-based nuclear reactor which is different from uranium-based nuclear reactors. So it uses thorium is the fuel source and it breathes new fuel from thorium. So that's what it does. So currently what we have is that there are no commercial thorium-based nuclear reactors in the world. We have various experimental reactors that are being worked on in the world. Many countries have various development programs. India has one of the most advanced thorium uh, research programs in the world. Yeah, India obviously has a, a quarter of the entire world's thorium resources. Yeah. So India is doing that. We have the largest thorium reserves in the world and we are actively uh, researching thorium-based nuclear technology. Uh, and India has been doing this for several decades. I'm not exactly sure where we are at. Yeah, I think the government of India has stated that by 2050, about a third of our electricity should come from thorium-based reactors. So that's about 30 years in the future. By that time, if we can perfect, you know, uh, or, or if we can... Uh, not perfect, but improve uh, the reactor design and all that, then we could start uh, building thorium-based reactors. So that's what we could do. So there is a great uh, amount of potential in thorium-based nuclear energy. Uh, and the reactors can be smaller as well and more efficient, and they will produce less uh, of the harmful radioactive waste that uh, your, your typical normal standard reactors produce. And the, the chances of a melt, nuclear meltdown also are low because the temperatures in a thorium-based reactor are also, are also lower. So it's a win-win kind of situation. I'm not sure why all the nations in the world, like the US, India, China, France, etc., have not gone fully into thorium-based uh, nuclear uh, 
power but it's uh, certainly something that needs that needs to happen now the other question is what about uh, making nukes with thorium so yes you can use a thorium reactor thorium based nuclear reactor to uh, breeder reactor to produce uranium 233 and technically you can definitely produce a uh, fissile material that can be used in nuclear weapons in a thorium reactor but you know the best way to acquire uranium 235 which goes into nuclear weapons is to use the naturally occurring uranium ore which is mostly uranium 238 and to uh, enrich that in centrifuges so this is a much more efficient process it can, it can consumes less resources less money and it produces much more uh, nuclear fuel weapons grade nuclear uh, fuel than than a thorium based reactor would produce so so uh, making nukes with a, for, from a thorium reactor is not the ideal way of doing it ideally you you just do it by acquiring uranium ore which is mostly 238 uranium 238 and then purifying it yeah enriching it to weapons grade uranium which is 90% or more uranium 235 that's how we do it that's a much more cost efficient and overall efficient process using centrifuges and all that so india does that obviously i'm um, yeah that's how it is uh, but i think india should really focus on the thorium nuclear uh, power option uh, i believe that india has one of the most advanced thorium research programs in the world uh, and and uh, the stated objective of the government is to generate at least 30% of india's electricity from thorium based reactors by 2050 so let's go for it we 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 are fortunate to have so so much uh, such an abundance of thorium in india when it comes to uh, the monazite sands on the eastern coast of india and uh, odisha i think andhra pradesh wherever it is yeah so we have abundant uh, thorium reserves so we should use this and uh, and diversify our our energy supplies I and mean, this is obviously clean energy it's green energy it doesn't have a carbon footprint or anything so it's it's a it's something that india really needs to focus on and that could really help india in the long run so that is the deal uh, how far are we from harnessing thorium based electricity or thorium based nukes or not a, so thorium based nukes are mainly mostly out of the question it it doesn't make sense to have thorium based nukes thorium is not a fissile material you have to create Uh, so uranium 235 is the, is the way to go when it comes to nuclear weapons electricity i'm not sure how far we are we have one of the most advanced programs but i don't know where exactly we are hopefully by 2050 we'll be producing at least a third of our electricity from thorium based reactors and that's uh, and that would be great okay daniel says ah i think two or three people asked most of the questions most of the interesting questions Okay Daniel says when a thermonuclear device or any nuclear device is detonated is it possible to exactly determine the impact diameter is that diameter dependent on external factors as well of course you can uh, determine the the radius the like you said the impact diameter so when you detonate a nuclear weapon you know what is the blast radius and what is the radius uh, in which everybody will die everything will be flattened and the radius at which a certain amount of radiation goes out and all that it can be calculated it's very simple yeah it's mainly dependent on the yield of the nuclear weapon the yield is typically measured in in terms of kilotons of tnt or megatons of tnt yeah 
uh, i think the the largest uh, weapon that india has tested was a 60 kiloton uh, thermonuclear weapon yeah and uh, the americans uh, have a standard 100 kiloton weapon called the w something and they have tested megaton weapons as well the russians have tested the largest weapon ever which was a 50 megaton weapon which was called the tsar bomba and all that yeah so uh yeah it's it's pretty straightforward for a nuclear physicist to calculate the the blast radius and all that and there are websites that can help you do that you know so let's take a look at one of the websites it's called uh, it's called nuclearsecrecy.com/something let's take a look at that nuke map just give me a second nuclearsecrecy.com/nuke map let's put that on the screen one second give me a second and here we are nuclearsecrecy.com and 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 this comes with all these preset options you can uh, you can select any city or you can select nuclear uh, historical locations and it's it's uh, it's preselected new york city for some reason so uh, so i i hope nobody gets offended i'm not <laughs> uh, so let's what do we see Okay, just for the sake of taking a look at this, yeah, let's let's do it on New York City. Uh, what yield do we want? Let's take a standard bomb, which is the largest Indian weapon, sixty kilotons. Let's take the W seventy six, which is common in the US and UK SLBM arsenal. So we have a hundred kiloton nuclear device, the W seventy six. We are focusing on New York City, which is what the website gave me. Okay, it's not my choice, and. Um, and we're going to do a airburst instead of surface or we could do a surface thing let's do an airburst which is like the bomb will detonate in the air itself not on the surface not upon impact and let's detonate boom so there you go so the fireball radius is 380 meters that's the radius the radiation radius is 5 is 1.11 kilometers the moderate blast damage radius is 3.26 kilometers and all that so it tells you what kind of blast radius it's going to have and all that it's standard uh, calculations you could uh, use a north korean weapon yeah and then see what happens it's a slightly larger one slightly larger uh, blast impact let's go for a 1 megaton bomb and see what happens it's a much bigger radius uh, did they have tsar bomba <laughs> 50 megaton let's see boom enormous yeah so that's how it is it's possible to more or less exactly determine the impact diameter you can also take a look at the radioactive fallout which will depend on the wind and all that so here you have uh, you can see the yellow portion which is the radioactive fallout which is dependent on the wind direction so if the wind is uh, in the direction of the northeast then it will go all the way to, to massachusetts and all that from there and uh, yeah let's not lay, take a look at casualties which will depend on various factors and all that so that's how it is yep so uh, this uh, website is called nuclearsecrecy.com/nukemap you can go and take a look at it and play around with the various settings and yeah that's how it is yeah so it's definitely possible to determine all these parameters uh, quite precisely depending on the on the uh, yield of the nuclear weapon and the height at which you detonate it and various other factors yeah Hardik says uh, namaste yes um, you have said multiple times that india needs to rewrite its entire history and now the home minister shri amit shah made a few comments recently okay uh, so the question is 
hypothetically, if you were in charge of this project, of this plan, how would you approach this problem? And how do you fix the puzzle since the ASI is useless and so many anti-Indians resist this move? Look, the ASI has nothing to do with writing textbooks. The ASI is in charge of, of uh, preserving and restoring our archaeological sites. It's nothing to do with the history textbooks. So let's keep the ASI aside in this matter. Now, many anti-Indians will resist the move. There will always be people who resist anything you do. Especially when you're trying to do something good, there's going to be a whole lot of people who will try to resist it. Now, if you have a strong government, you ignore those voices and you do what's necessary for the nation. All right, that's how it is. Um, so the question then is, hypothetically, if I was in charge, if I were in charge of this project to rewrite the, the history textbooks, how would I go about this? Yeah. So what I would do, how many states does India have? 29, 28, 30? Uh, no hate, please. I don't remember how many states India has. Uh, let, let's Google it. Yes, let's Google how many states India has. Uh, let us do it. Uh, let us go to Google. N uh, number of Indian states. India has 28 states, like I said, and 8 union territories. So let's say we divide India yeah, into 30 regions. Uh, hypothetically. Just for the sake of argument, let's say we divide India into 30 regions. Then what I would do is in each of these regions, I would select five or 10 young historians. Obviously, you will have to interview them and, and, and see what kind of knowledge they have and what the attitude is. You know, the attitude is most important because, you know, Typically, a history graduate will be all about dates and chronology, and they will not under, they will not focus on chronology and the cause and effect sequence and all that. So you need to have historians with the right mindset, the right attitude, and the desire and, and the understanding that history has been written in a, in a very distorted manner. And hopefully there should be young people. After a certain age, people become very close-minded. After the age of, I don't know, 30, 35, or whatever, 40. After a certain age, most people stop being receptive to new ideas and stop thinking differently. So you would want young people in their mid-20s or so. yeah. And what I would do is, is for each state, select five or ten people and give them the task of, of uh, researching the last, let's say, 3,000, 4,000 years of the history of that state from all sources available, yeah? And compile a big giant book together collaboratively for each state. So we have 28 states. Let's say we divide India into 30 states, hypothetically, yeah? So for each of the states, I would I would constitute a, a committee of, of historians who would compile the detailed chronological history of that state. And obviously, there'll be interactions. I mean, this, no state exists separately. No region exists separately. There's always, if everything is interconnected, so there's going to be effects from other states and all that also coming in. So I would ask, I would do this. And I would give them, let's say, two years to do this. So you have 10 people from 30, 30 regions. So that's 300 people. And you give these people, let's say, two years to do this work. I think in two years, it's definitely feasible to do this. Uh, so you would have to employ 300 people and you would obviously have to have a, a committee that supervises what's happening and, and stays on, on, on top of everything and tracks the project and all that. Yeah. So you have 300 people working on this and they do this for it on a two-year two period and you would obviously have to pay them. So let's say you're paying them one lakh per month. Why not? 
they're doing good good work so for each state that's 10 lakhs per month the 30 states that's 300 lakhs and 3 crores the 3 crores per month you do that for 12 months that's 36 crores for 2 years it's 76 72 crores so overall the total budget is 72 crores and there will be obviously some traveling and some research and all that so about 100 crore rupees for 2 years i don't think it's a lot of money for the for the for for the central government or whatever and in 2 years you get 30 textbooks 30 textbooks that cover the detailed history of of each of these 30 regions and then you sit to get everybody together and based on all this detailed stuff you create a big history of india overall out of all of this yeah that would that could take another one or two years so within 3 4 years you have not only a set of 30 authoritative histories of the various parts of india you also have one big overall history book and that's how i would do it yeah so i do, i don't think it's a difficult task i don't think it's a difficult task at all i don't think it will take decades you can do it in 3 or 4 years maximum 5 years yeah and it will not cost a whole lot of money so it's definitely feasible and uh, it's it's uh, it's about political will if the if the political leadership is willing to do it it can be made to happen it's not difficult so that's how i would go about doing this shri balram putin says while researching how do you know which information is authentic history especially so let's understand something when you first start studying a subject you're a student not a researcher right and when you first start studying a subject you know nothing about it you are clueless so you take one one textbook you start studying it you're completely clueless you study it and you absorb all the information as much as you can then you take another textbook you study it over a period of let's say 5 years you you study lots of textbooks and over time you start understanding the patterns you start accumulating the knowledge and if you are intelligent enough you will start understanding what makes sense and where the information is kind of dodgy yeah so eventually at some point in time you make an imperceptible transition from being a student to be a, being a researcher so most people unfortunately in india consider themselves to be researchers from day one that's the main that's the one of the biggest problems i see i am a researcher i am doing research no spend 5 years or 10 years as a, as a student show some humility have some patience study a lot put in the hours put in at least several hundred hours of of reading not several hundred days but several hundred hours of active reading that's when you have enough knowledge to make the transition to being a researcher and only when you have that much knowledge can you be able to tell what is what information is authentic or not so it's so the ability to understand which information is authentic and which is not is something you have to earn by putting in the work hundreds of hours of study not research study yeah so from day one you are not a researcher unless you have put in several hundred hours of study you are not a researcher and if you do put in several hundred hours of study then you will automatically begin be in a position to start telling which information is authentic and which is not so there is no shortcut to this 
I cannot tell you in, in three minutes how to figure out which information is authentic, which is not. It is something you have to earn. And very few people are willing to pay that price. That's how it goes, my dear friends. Tejas says, where catapults invented in India? Ajak Chatru, son of Bimbisar of the Haryanka dynasty, is recorded to have used catapults in, in, in his war against the Lichavis around 480 BC. Wikipedia, surprisingly, I'm surprised you find it surprising. <laughs> Wikipedia says, does not show this, and credits the invention of the catapults and the mangonels to the Greeks. Okay, I have not taken a look at the Wikipedia article. Um, but I am not surprised that uh, that uh, Wikipedia credit, credits everything to the Greeks. Yeah. So Ajat Shatru was, I think, the second king of the Haryanka dynasty, the son, the son of King Bimbisar. Yeah. The Haryanka dynasty uh, was a dynasty, uh, was a kingdom empire, so to say. In eastern India, the capital was Patliputra. The capital was was uh, was it Patliputra? Was it the Rajgriha? Maybe it was a transition from Rajgrihi to Patliputra. I don't remember quite uh, quite what it was. It was in Eastern India. It was it was what was later Magadh. So that's where the Haryanka dynasty was. The the first king was most likely Bimbisar, and his son most likely was Ajat Shatru. So Ajat Shatru is said to have been a contemporary of uh, Gautam Buddha, and also Mahavir, most likely, according to the chronology that that is uh, accepted in the mainstream of history. Yeah. So Ajat Chatru is known to have fought uh, a war against the Vajika, the Vajika Confederation, which obviously, as we know, was led by the Lichavi clan. Yeah, the Lichavis were a great ancient clan. Uh, the one of the who was the first major king of the Gupta Empire. He. He had married a, a Lichavi princess Le, much later, much later. So, so let's not go into that right now. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Ajat Shatru fought a war against the Vajika League, which was led by the Lichavi clan. And uh, Ajat Shatru is known to have conquered the Republic, the Mahajanapada of Vaishali. And he used uh, these catapults in this war, in this war against the, against the Vajika uh, confederation. Yeah. So this happened sometime in the 5th century BC, like 480 BC or whatever they just is saying. I don't, I don't remember the, the date. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely catapults were used at the time. So what is, okay, yeah, the question some people may have is, what is a catapult? So let us uh, take a look at a catapult. What is catapult? A catapult is this thing, C-A-T-A-P-U-L-T, catapult. It's this uh, instrument that is used in siege warfare. Uh there you go. There's a Roman guy holding a catapult. So it's this instrument on which you put these massive stones and then you fling the stones at fortifications. So let's say you have a fort fortified city with a wall around it and you want to bring the wall down. You have encircled the city with your soldiers and your army, but the wall is in impregnable. And what you do is you construct these massive machines and you hurl these big boulders at the wall. It's like, um, it's like low tech artillery. Yeah. Uh, so that's what you had. This is what a catapult was. And typically, uh, Wikipedia and whatever else will say that it was the Greeks or the Romans or whoever, whoever else that invented this thing. Now, that's a good example of a catapult, this image here. Yeah. So that's a catapult. Uh, and if you go to Wikipedia, I'm sure they will say it's either the Chinese or the, the, the Greeks or the Mesopotamians or whoever else that invented this. Now, think about it. Think about it logically. 
think about it logically did ancient indians have the technological ability to build something like a catapult we know that during the so called uh, uh so called peak of the saraswati sindhu phase of our civilization the so called mature harappan phase you had a completely urbanized society in india in north northern and western and central india yeah the cities were laid out according to a grid structure you had multi storied buildings everywhere you had this massive granaries massive meeting halls you had this massive uh, uh what do you call them uh, public baths you had hydro engineering you had uh, dockyards you had ships and a ship is a is a complex machine wooden instrument yeah so a civilization that can develop all these advances in technology can certainly develop a catapult and historians say that the it's known that there, there is no evidence of warfare from the entire saraswati sindhu sindhu phase of indian history it's also known at the same time that we were sending soldiers outside of india to fight uh, on behalf of, of our allies in marhashi and ilam against the akkadians 4300 years before today yeah so at that time we were in the most advanced phase of the so called saraswati sindhu sindhu uh, civilization phase yeah extremely advanced technology the most advanced technology of, of its time where our engineers at that time capable of constructing catapults i think they were capable uh, they were capable of of building much more complex instruments than catapults but catapults are made of wood and uh, Uh, we don't have evidence of that we don't have any evidence of that in, in carvings or paintings or whatever inscriptions and all that so uh but also we have to understand that the absence of evidence like i like to say is not the evidence of absence yeah so um so it is recorded that ajatshatru used uh, catapults it's also known that we had extremely advanced technology 5000 years before today yeah so and and at that time our our ancestors and their or engineers from the time were certainly capable of of building instruments such as catapults and much more sophisticated instruments but we don't have evidence so yeah what can we say so leave wikipedia to do its thing we don't have to focus on wikipedia wikipedia is not a reliable or trustworthy source of information and uh, that's just where it is yeah Okay, Rodrigit says Indians have been practicing various types of dance since ancient times. Did Indians export these dances to Southeast Asian countries and China? Are these dances still practiced in these countries even to this day? Uh, I'm not sure if we exported any dance forms to China, but we certainly did export a huge amount of such cultural, uh, uh, such culture. to the southeast asian uh, region yeah for instance uh, we have something called the apsara dance uh, let's see what the apsara dance look like it looks like it is it is something that is still practiced yeah the apsara dance let's go to google it's uh, in cambodia etc apsara dance so apsara dance is is mostly in cambodia uh, let's take a look at this this is from the walls of the uh, which dance angkor wat temple so you have these ladies uh, dressed in these uh, costumes who are apsaras who, who who represent the apsaras of of our mythology A- and you have these dancers who still wear the same costumes and perform the same dances 
so these dances are clearly uh, something that uh, most likely came out of india if you watch the actual videos of the dance it's kind of reminiscent of odissi dance and also to some extent of, the, of manipuri classical dance yeah so th- that's what you see uh, the moves are very graceful and they are reminiscent of odissi dance and manipuri dance uh, in some ways then you have da- the the balinese dance which is even more evocative of the odissi dance form and to some extent of kuchipudi also the the facial expressions the eye expressions and all that it kind of reminds you of odissi but the tribhanga posture that you see is is reminiscent of of odissi dance so this is the dance form that you have in bali today it's a balinese uh, traditional dance form folk dance uh, classical dance i'm not sure what you what you call it the instruments are also very similar to indian instruments the the, the percussion instrument the drums and all that yeah so it's clear that uh, dance forms did uh were indeed exported out of india into southeast asia bali is in indonesia cambodia is part of uh, the the other part of southeast asia uh, next to vietnam and laos and all that so yes and, and you know and you know this is very fascinating actually i wish our historians and sociologists would focus on these things and try to figure out at what stage in our history did, did, did all these cultural artifacts go out of india and and enter into the into the society of these places it's such fascinating history and nobody has bothered to research any of this our historians are busy researching or or inventing a ways of denigrating our our culture and our history you have so much fascinating history over here that nobody nobody is is interested in it's it's really a shame so yeah these dances are still practiced in these countries till till this day obviously they have acquired the local flavor also yeah so uh you can see some elements of odissi in there you can see some elements of kuchipudi in there you can see some elements of manipuri dance in there and obviously you have the local uh, flavor also the local folk uh, flavor and all that and they typically de- depict the ramayan mostly the ramayan and various other other uh, ancient events and all that so that's what it is so yes indeed that's true on once again rodrajit corsica is linguistically culturally and geographically much closer to italy then why does france own corsica is a good question my friend so let's take a look at the map where is a corsica let's go to the map where is our dear good friend the map and where is corsica so let's go to the mediterranean sea yes and over here we have italy as we know and uh, over here we have france and here is what they call corse in south of corse we have sardinia the main city in sardinia is cagliari which is part of italy so sardinia this big island over here is part of italy and this island here is corsica the french call it corse which is very close to italy and yet it's part of france and therefore the the question naturally arises as, as to why is corsica a part of france even though it's linguistically culturally etc geographically much closer to italy so where is genoa genoa is the city here there you have it so corsica the island was controlled was owned you could say by the republic of genoa for about 400 500 years until the 18th century yeah so genoa was this uh, 
city state you could say the republic of genoa italy was not always with this one nation yeah yeah they had the various phases of, of of italian history so genoa was a very powerful city a very powerful republic at one time and it essentially controlled or owned corsica until the 18th century and then there was this then what happened is that uh, there was this treaty of versailles not the 20th century treaty of versailles but the 18th century treaty of versailles in 1768 so in according to this treaty corsica was was given away was ceded to france by the republic of genoa as per this treaty of versailles in 1768 now why why was it like this so corsica uh, so essentially what what happened is that the french desired to own corsica so as to have a bigger uh, geopolitical or geostrategic or naval footprint in the mediterranean sea and the genoese were in need of money and they had become weaker weakened because of whatever reason yeah you know things change <laughs> that's the main thing in history so genoa had, had become much weaker and they were in need of money the french offered them money they said we'll not go to war we'll just pay you money and give us corsica yeah so that's what happened and and the genoese sold corsica just like the russians sold alaska to america the same way the genoese sold corsica to france in 1768 funnily enough not funnily enough but coincidentally the year after the genoese sold corsica to france they sold it in 1768 in 1769 was the birth of napoleone di buonaparte in corsica yeah he was born in corsica and uh, his father was fighting a guerrilla war against the french he was not willing to accept corsica becoming a part of france so he was fighting a freedom struggle napoleon's father against the french in corsica yeah and eventually he kind of uh, he was a practical man then he made his peace with france and he even became you could say the 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 ambassador of corsica in the french court in in paris uh, etc and through his connections he was able to enlist napoleon his son in a good military school and then as you say the rest is history within 20 years napoleon was the emperor of france <laughs> that's how it uh, it went in in between there was also the the small issue of the french revolution that happened so that's how it was so the italians owned corsica the the genoese owned corsica and they chose to sell it to france and that benefited france a great deal and as a result of that corsica is still part of france interesting story shri kesari says serbia has recently revoked visa on arrival that facility for indians it was the only european nation to uh, provide visa on arrival to india is this attempt of serbia to join the schengen region visa or failure of india's engagement with serbia or is it a problem of illegal immigration okay yes until the end of 2022 indians could just fly to serbia and they would be given a visa on arrival once they arrived at belgrade airport or wherever it is that they arrived where is serbia let's take a look at the map once again where is the map so we know where italy is yeah this is italy here italy yes and if you go east of italy you have the balkan region you have croatia then you have bosnia and herzegovina and then you have Cro- uh, then you have serbia and uh, the uh, the serbian capital is belgrade yeah so um 
what's happened is that Serbia wishes to join the European Union. It is currently in advanced stages of negotiation for joining the European Union and the Schengen area. Yeah, And one of the preconditions for Serbia joining the EU is for Serbia to start uh, adhering to EU visa regulations. So uh, the European Union has a very uniform set of visa regulations. It's a visa-free zone. So once you have a visa to any Schengen country, you have you are free to, free to travel in the entire region. That's how it is. Uh, so Serbia wants to become part of that. And that's why they have to now start uh, adhering to whatever visa regulations the EU countries have. And for the EU, EU countries, uh, there is no visa on arrival for India. Because India belongs to a category where they do not wish to offer a visa on arrival. For Americans, there is a visa on arrival anytime, but not for Indians. So until, until December 31, 2022, Serbia was offering Indians a visa on arrival. Now they are no longer doing that. It's not because of some kind of failure of India's government to engage with Serbia. It's because of Serbia's desire to join the European Union. And the European Union says that these are the rules. You want to join us? This is what you have to do. So that's what they are doing. Right, and they say it's about illegal immigration. It's not only about India, but other countries also, which which were uh, given the visa on arrival facility, which has now been revoked. Not only India, but other some other nations as well. So uh, the pretext is illegal immigration, blah blah blah, all that. It doesn't matter if who cares, yeah. So that's how it is. So it's not because of some failure of Indian diplomacy or engagement. It's none of that. It's just because the Serbians want to join the Euro European Union. That's why this has happened. Unfortunate, but that's how it goes. How it goes in the world. C'est la vie. Yes. Okay, Shri Balram Putin says, what are the Lagrange points in space? And what kind of telescope is Elon Musk building? Lagrange points. Let's uh, let's put that on the screen because it's visually, it makes much more sense visually. There are five Lagrange points. Which, these are equilibrium points. Let me put that on the screen so that you understand. Yeah. Visually, it's much, much more easier to understand. Okay. La, uh, la Grange points. So you have L1 to L5. Let's go to the images. Uh, let's see a good image. This one is a good one. Yeah. So we have the earth sun system over here. This here is the earth. This bright point at the center is the sun. And then you have L1, L2, L3, L4 and L5, the five Lagrange points. So the L1 Lagrange point is an equilibrium point between the Earth and the Sun. Yeah, we can calculate the distance. If you place an object over there, it will be in, in complete perfect equilibrium. It will not go anywhere else. It will stay in, in its place. If you place an object on the L, at the L1 Lagrange point, it is between the Earth and the Sun. It's where the gravitational effects of both objects, the Earth and the Sun, cancel each other out. The L2 Lagrange point is in a straight line between the Earth and the Sun, but it is at a point where the Earth obscures the Sun's light. So it's on the other side, yeah. And over there also, you can place, you can you can park spacecraft in in that place or in orbit around the L2 point. The James Webb Space Telescope is right now parked in an orbit around the L2 Lagrange point. So the L2 point is also a point of equilibrium between uh, in the Earth Sun system. The L3 point is on the other side of the sun. So I would never recommend you do this, but if you were to hypothetically stare at the sun, then on the other side of the sun, you have the L3 Lagrange point. Yeah, That's also an equilibrium point where you can park some uh, a spacecraft or a planet in orbit and you will never get to see it. <laughs> then you have the L4 and L5 Lagrange points. So the L4 and L5 Lagrange points are the, uh, the, the if you see the Earth and Sun system and the L4 point, 
then this forms an equi- equilateral triangle a triangle whose three angles are all 60 degrees so that's the l4 and l5 lagrange points you can even park spacecraft or satellites or whatever in those points as well so the lagrange points are something you have with every object in the solar system not only the earth jupiter has its lagrange points and and that's where you have these huge bunches of asteroids that are parked over there the trojan asteroids yeah trojan aster asteroids so trojan asteroids so if you see in this image jupiter has these two bunches of asteroids that go around with it uh, which are parked in the l4 and l5 lagrange points of jupiter which are called the trojan points i believe yeah uh so that's uh, so in that way jupiter is able to uh, shield earth from the impacts of those asteroids which would otherwise be free to go around and, and and cause havoc in the solar system yeah so that's the l4 and l5 trojan asteroids of jupiter so that's what lagrange points are now the other question that balram that shri balram putin has asked is that uh, what kind of telescope is elon musk building so elon musk is not building a telescope he is building various more and more powerful rockets uh, the most powerful rocket is building right now is called the starship i believe yeah the starship which is a, a massive giant rocket which has twice the amount of thrust that the saturn 5 rocket had the one that took the first human beings to the moon in the 1960s that was until now i believe the most powerful rocket ever built and the starship that elon musk the spacex is building is twice as powerful yeah so elon musk has said that you could use the starship as a satellite as a telescope of its own you know the starship let's take a look at the starship you know the spacex starship space spacex spacex star ship give me a second let me put that on the screen so this is what the rocket looks like the spacex starship as you can see it's pretty much cylindrical in shape more or less so elon musk says that you could use this rocket the the, the cylindrical design of etc as the 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 structure that that encases a telescope so it could have like 10 times the resolution of the hubble space telescope so that's what he has proposed and obviously it's just a proposal it's not like he's building it but it's certainly feasible you put this thing in earth orbit and then you put this giant lenses in it and start using it as a telescope it will work perfectly well yeah so that's what he's proposing so he's not right now building a telescope this a uh, space uh, this uh, rocket has not been tested yet fully i believe it's not uh, yet gone into earth orbit but it's certainly going to happen sooner or later and then if the funding is made available etc you could have a giant telescope inside one of these rockets orbiting the earth so right now we have uh, two major space based telescopes one is the old hubble space telescope that went into orbit in the 1980s late 80s and then you have the newer telescope the much more advanced uh, james webb space telescope which is parked at the uh, l2 lagrange point yeah uh, and then you could have a new telescope if elon musk uh, musk gets the funding and he has also proposed that he could uh, extend the life of the hubble space telescope by uh, So right now the Hubble Space Telescope uh, it was it, a few years ago I think it was placed into an elevated orbit around the earth at about 560 kilometers above the surface of the earth yeah and in the past few years it's it's dropped 
its its altitude has dropped or elevation has dropped by about 20 or 30 kilometers so eventually it's going to come closer to the earth's atmosphere it's going to start experiencing an atmospheric drag and eventually it will have to be brought into the atmosphere and burned out that's what it eventually will happen so it is possible that elon musk could use his dragon spacex dragon capsule spacecraft to go and service the hubble space telescope and again put it in a higher orbit which could extend the lifestyle lifetime of the hubble telescope by another decade or two possibly yeah it's not a bad idea and it's certainly something that's feasible if nasa if the us government is willing to put in the money so that's what elon musk is doing or could be doing he could first of all extend the life span of the hubble space telescope by another decade or so if he does this if it is approved and secondly if the funding is made available he could turn he could transform one of his starship rockets into a giant telescope with maybe 10 times the resolution of the hubble space telescope so that is what is going on right now yes right kush kohad says do submarines go through the suez canal considering the fact that they need to stay hidden or do they go through the long route so you know uh, what does the suez canal look like let's take a look at that suez canal let's put that on the screen give me a second suez canal so this is what the suez canal looks like so the suez canal is pretty wide it can even take uh, as you can see an aircraft carrier an aircraft carrier can easily easily go through the suez canal so if a, a ship of the size of an aircraft carrier can uh, go through the suez canal um, a submarine can certainly go through the canal as well so the width of the suez canal is about 200 to 220 meters and you can see that in this image that is on the screen right now yeah uh there's here's another image of an aircraft carrier transiting uh, through the suez canal so the width of the canal is more than 200 meters the depth is about 23 to 24 meters the depth of the suez canal now let's take a look at what a los angeles class submarine looks like los angeles class submarine one of them is called the uss annapolis right So here is a schematic representation of the of a typical Los Angeles class submarine. So you have this black portion on top, the the top half, and you have the red portion, the bottom half. Yeah. So uh, the Los Angeles uh, class submarine is the uh, most prevalent class of American nuclear submarine. I think more than twenty of the submarines are still operational right now. Yeah. Uh, so the submarine has a beam, which is the width. Uh, i'm not sure what the beam is and what the width is let's go to wikipedia and find out what the beam and the width is the beam and the draft is los angeles class submarine uh 26 are active 34 are retired the length is 370 362 feet that's 110 meters that's the length we don't care about that the beam uh is 10 meters which is how wide the submarine is yeah and the draft is 9 point let's say it's 10 meters that is the uh the distance from the bottom of the submarine to the water line okay so if you take this example the red portion is the draft of the submarine and that's about 10 meters 
so that is if the submarine was was uh, was visible in the water half of it would be still submerged that's the red portion and that red portion is about 10 meters tall and obviously the the dark portion the black portion is also about 10 meters tall but then you have the conning tower which could be another 15 meters so it's about 25 meters plus 10 meters it's about 35 meters total in 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 height that the submarine has so clearly with the depth of the suez canal being 20 23 meters 24 meters it's impossible for a submarine to pass through it submerged impossible so a submarine can certainly pass through the suez canal but it is impossible for a submarine of this this size or most likely any size to stay submerged and to stay hidden it will have to be visible and that's the deal that's how it is so i think in the past american submarines have transited through the suez canal in the past i'm sure israeli submarines also must have transited the suez canal and uh, so the suez canal is not meant for you know stealthy navigation uh it's it's whatever happens there is is essentially something that that everybody gets to see yeah that's how it is okay mohammed adil says how can i as a student study physics more effectively and please suggest some effective steps to become a scientist uh, how can you study physics more effectively first of all it's all about mathematics you want to be a good physicist you have to have a very strong foundation in mathematics in calculus in linear algebra in differential equations and and all that which comes with it take a good book uh mathematical methods of physics by mary bose or or whoever else it is i got a few over here and uh, the various subjects you know to master so you need to have a very strong foundation in mathematics that is non negotiable you want to be a good uh, you want to be really adept at physics you have to first of all master mathematics and then to understand the various concepts of physics and to, to internalize internalize them you have to work through lots of problems you have to solve lots of physics problems yeah and you first understand the key concepts and principles of physics by reading textbooks maybe by by looking at diagrams and animations maybe by watching by by using online resources like videos and all that yeah you understand the concepts from that and then you apply that in solving problems you have to solve hundreds maybe t- thousands of problems to to internalize all these concepts it should be like part of you you know living breathing sleeping physics you also have to understand the experimental basis of physics so how were all the experiments performed that gave us all this data and all all of this information yeah that will give you a deeper understanding of the subject then you know try and relate the concepts that you have learned to real world situations mm-hmm. take a look at a crystal why does a crystal look like this what, what a crystal has certain properties where do these properties come from that's an example and so on and so forth you know so try and relate whatever you've learned all this concept that you have mastered to real world situations because that will help you make the the material more relatable and understand it better and practice 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 solve as many problems as you possibly can that is the key to mastering physics so that's how you study physics more effectively yeah if you really want to study it properly and master the subject now how do you become a scientist so once you have studied and mastered the subject you have all this knowledge and understanding you can use it in two ways or three ways one is you do nothing with it that's a waste of time the other way so there are two real ways of using it most people who really master physics use it in two ways one is they teach the subject to others so they become teachers or professors that's what you do 
when you have mastered the subject, but you want to communicate that and transmit that knowledge to others. The other thing you can do with your knowledge is to solve, is to try and solve unsolved problems. That's when you become an, an actual scientist. A scientist is a person who solves problems, who tries to solve problems that are still unsolved. That's where you become a scientist. Just knowing physics doesn't make you a scientist or a physicist. Yeah? You have to actually work on problems and problems that are still open problems. That's what you do. So first, you have to really master the subject uh, by going through the steps that I outlined. And then you have to pick up problems that are still open problems. There are lots of open problems in physics that nobody has an answer for right now. You take those problems and you try to solve them. That's that's called research, active research. And that's how you become a scientist. And obviously, if you want to be a scientist, you will be you will need to have degrees and all that. Yeah. Master's degree, PhD, whatever. And you will have to be in a, in a scientific institution. You can also do it as an independent scientist, but it's much harder if you go through along that route. Yeah. Because obviously, if you are if you are in an institution, in an institute, you get you have the funding, you have the job security, and you have the time and all that. Otherwise, you don't. So that's how you do it. And that's how you become a scientist. I, I hope that uh, kind of throws some light, clarifies it. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> Rodrigit says, why are Central America and South America still poor, even though most of these countries are pro-USA? Well, even the Philippines is pro-USA. It is very poor. It's a third world nation. That's what the Americans call it. Pakistan has been pro-USA for the longest period. They are desperately poor. There are so many African nations that have been pro-USA for the longest time. They are desperately poor. So this hopefully will explain, tell you that being pro-USA is not a ticket to becoming rich. <laughs> Just because I am pro-USA doesn't mean that I'll become rich. That doesn't, that's not how it works. Yeah, Which nations are rich, which are pro-USA? Japan and South Korea and, and Taiwan. And why are these nations rich? Let's, let's go to the map. Where is the map? The map is eluding me. I need to capture it and place it on the screen. Here it is. Yes. So the nations that are indeed rich are Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan. These three nations are under large-scale permanent U.S. occupation. There are tens of thousands of U.S. troops in these places. And when you have, where you have so many Americans permanently stationed in these places, they want the place to be nice and clean and pretty and developed. So they have ensured that Japan and South Korea and Taiwan become highly developed. They don't have any permanent presence in the Philippines. So they don't, they don't care what happens there. They don't care what happens in the various African nations, which are pro-USA and so on and so forth. That's how it goes. So just being pro-USA is not a ticket to financial riches and freedom and all that. Yeah, <laughs> get it? It's not, it's not as simple as that. Right. Shri Balram Putin says, I used to read a lot, but suddenly I quit. Because then I realized that I'm not able to apply the knowledge in my life. I'm really struggling. Please guide me. You know, if you read a lot, it doesn't mean you're going to succeed in life. If you read all kinds of random stuff, you read a few novels here, you read some nonfiction there, you need some read something else here, and so on and so forth. It's, it's not going to help you in any way whatsoever in life. You will accumulate a lot of knowledge, information perhaps, but it's not going to help you in life. Reading doesn't change your life in any way whatsoever unless, unless, there's a caveat here, unless it's focused reading and focused learning and then you apply it. 
Yeah. So let's say you are a business, you are, you are an entrepreneur, you want to start a business and you have a budget of, let's say 10 lakh for the year. Yeah. So then if you read specific books about how to bootstrap a small business and things like that, then, and then you try things in life, in your business, then you may be able to apply it. So your application has to be specific and focused. Just there are people who read all their life and they do nothing in life. So if you want to do something in life, you have to take action. Reading is not action. Reading is passive. Yeah. So first of all, you need to be proactive in life. You need to have a goal. You need to be working towards the goal. And you have to be willing to fail. And your initial failures, five, six failures, should be small failures, not huge failures, not catastrophic failures. Let's say you have a budget of 10 lakh rupees and you risk it all. You don't understand risk management. Yeah. Your first failure should not be your last failure. So bad that you can not ever try business again. Yeah, you have to sm fail in small increments, and you learn. You have to learn each time from the failure, and that in that's where reading comes in. So how to learn from failure? How to apply various principles in business? So that's just one example I'm offering you. When it comes to sport, if you want to achieve success in sport, you can re read about mental management. You know, there are people who are extremely talented but they choke at the wrong minute wrong wrong time all the time in sport certain sports teams are are notorious for choking so how to manage the mental aspect of sport that's what you can read so you can only apply knowledge in life that you have read about when you are re reading from a specific perspective when you're reading specific specific knowledge you read random stuff you read a little bit of history you read a little bit of science you read some some novels you read something else, it's, it's not going to help you. Your reading should be focused. And you have to apply those concepts and principles in whatever you're doing. Yeah? So that's how you do it. And uh, so, yeah, all the best. Trupti says, how do you raise your standards? And also how to increase confidence and self-esteem. Raising your standards means improving yourself every day. Or over a period of time. Yeah, small, gradual, incremental changes. Improve, 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 improve whatever you're doing. That's essentially how you raise your standards. There are so many ways of doing it. Stop wasting your time. Stop watching Netflix. Stop scrolling through Instagram seven hours a day. People do that. That's a very simple way of raising your standards. Stop doing that. Go on a diet, you know, social media diet. Only 30 minutes a day maximum or, or whatever works for you. And then use the remaining time in something that is actually productive and that's going to take you somewhere. That's how you raise your standards. And then build good habits. Yeah. Build build, build habits that, that take you in the right direction. Uh, stop wasting time. Stop talking too much. There are so many. I mean, this, this habit among Indians. Indians talk. Indians argue so much. Indians. Not just Indians. Most people. It's not just Indians. That, that would be wrong to say. Most people talk too much. Most people argue too much. Most people never listen. Talk, talk, talk. So that's something. If 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 that's that describes you, then you can change. Try to change that. Yeah. So there's so much you can do to raise your standards. Yeah. Don't tolerate mediocrity. Don't tolerate tolerate the average. Try and rise above the average. Try and be better than everybody around you. That's how you raise your standards. So you just identify specific things in which you want to be better. Now, how do you increase confidence and self-esteem? It's not easy. But one of the easiest ways of doing it is to never make a promise you can't keep. And whatever you say you will do, do it. It's, it's not always possible to succeed in that, yes. But you have to strive to do that. You have to strive to do that. So never make a promise you are not 
capable of keeping. And secondly, whatever you say that you will do, go ahead and do it. And you keep doing this over and over again, your confidence and self-esteem will automatically rise. That's how you do it. That's like some simple tips. All right. Now let's briefly take some questions from the live chat because uh, I seem to have covered most of what I took today. But yeah. All right. So if you have any questions, you can ask me right now and I will take, I will try and take a few questions from the live chat. Yes, I have a question since childhood, says Nilesh. Why does the universe exist and what would be there or happen if the universe doesn't exist? Well, I have no answer to that. Only, only, only God would have an answer to that. If a God does exist, who has created the universe? Why does the universe exist? You, you ask 15 people, they will give you 15 different answers. There is no scientific uh, way of answering it because we don't know what's outside, if there is anything outside and what created the universe and why was it created. We have no idea. No scientist, not even Albert Einstein or, 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 or Isaac Newton or Ramanujan can answer that question. It's purely hypothetical, purely it's all conjecture. So we don't know. I, I definitely don't know. It's it's beyond my my knowledge. My my small amount of knowledge cannot answer this question. I have no idea why the universe exists and what would be there or happen if it would not exist. I I am too small uh, an entity to answer such a such a big question. But it's it's good you have this question. You know, it's it shows that the thinking process is there and it's a, it's it's a good thought to have. <clears throat> All right. Ice age coming or it's just a myth? We will see. Anything could happen. You know, this 4.2 kilo year event happened. Nobody knew it was coming, but it came. And there was this, uh, what was it called? The Younger Dryas event. A thousand years of, of ice age. It happened all of a sudden, most likely because of a an impact event. So these things are what you would call black swan events. You have no idea they're coming and they suddenly come. Uh, so yeah. So right now we are talking about global warming and all, but who knows? Something could happen and it could cause an ice age is is possible yes <laughs> uh, why does time pass faster as we turn older that's an interesting phenomenon yes uh, when you're a kid when you're a small kid like three years old one day seems to take a, a, an, an eternity one day is a very long event when you're a small toddler three four years old but when you are 20, a day seems to pass faster. When you're 30, it seems to fast, pass faster. And older people in the 70s and 80s say that the time is just flying away now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a phenomenon that uh, see that is definitely there. And it looks like uh, the more experiences we accumulate, the more things seem to be the same. And when there is so much sameness, time seems to pass faster. But when you're expect, experiencing something very different and very new, that's when time again seems to slow down. So it's it's a thing of perception, and uh, maybe that's why maybe that's why time seems to pass faster. So the the trick is if you want time to pass slower, get yourself into experiences no you've not experienced before, and things that are different. And then things then the time will seem to pass slower. Um. What else do we have? Oh. <laughs> Please explain Battle of Ten Kings. Already done, sir. Please look at my older videos. Do a little search. Search, search. I've already done it. The thing is this. I have got more than a thousand video clips on this channel. I've answered almost every question imaginable. 
obviously the, the, i still get questions that i've never answered before so that's great so i'm really grateful for that but there are lots of questions i've already answered so so you you take the time to type a question and put it over here in the comments you can take the same time to to put it in the search box on my channel and you may get a video clip that in which i have already answered the question so do 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 try that yeah okay let's take one more question before we are done i can see a million uh, uh am i an atheist i think atheists are complete idiots with all due respect they are complete idiots so no i'm not with all due respect with all due respect uh, please don't get upset and emotional and all that i'm just kidding i am kidding here yes with all due respect uh, i never spoke about pangea i must have spoken about pangea it was this hypercontinent all everything all the landmasses stuck together about how, how when was it 300 million years before today or something like that uh, yep so there you have it i have spoken about pangea and uh, is there anything else that i could take now uh, i am woke uh, yes sir you uh, congratulations you are woke congratulations uh-huh i my thoughts on erdogan's turkey well erdogan's turkey is going backwards it's going it's turned its back on the ideals and principles of mustafa kemal atatürk and it's going back into the ottoman era maybe maybe shri erdogan wants to recreate the ottoman empire so yeah that's what i can say in brief it obviously uh, is a nation that has uh, imperialistic imperial ambitions yeah neo imperial ambitions it uh, considers itself a nation or or, or or an empire that has been wronged and they want to recreate uh, regain what they have lost so it looks like the turks are on their path yeah okay all right i guess we are at the end of today's session 2 hours 10 minutes plus so thank you very much for all the questions it's always great fun talking to you all and let's keep doing this right so i will see you in next week's live streams and until then take care of yourselves and see you soon thank you bye bye